0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. It's toward the back of the New Testament, probably a book a lot of us don't read very much. It's a long book. I think it's the third longest in the New Testament, and it's confusing to most of us because it talks about things that are foreign to us and to our expression of faith as Christians in the modern world, uh, but it's a great place to begin in the uh, this season of Advent. Abby mentioned that Advent is not, it's not ordained in the Scripture. In fact, we don't read about it in the New Testament. But it is a tradition from, from the earliest times of the Christian tr- uh, religion on to celebrate uh, the year uh, around the life of Jesus Christ. So the first Sunday of Advent, which is this year, this Sunday, and Advent goes for four Sundays, so it will be for the 1st, 8th, 15th, and 22nd. Of uh, December this year, the four Sundays before Christmas. Um, Advent comes from the word advenio in Latin, which means to arrive or to to uh, reach a destination or come to a place. It comes from ad to and venio to come. So the coming to us of God in Jesus Christ is what we're celebrating, what we're actually preparing for. And it's the beginning of the church year. You would think that the church year would begin in January, but in the uh, ancient time, it began on the first Sunday of Advent, according to Constantine, the emperor. And then it was followed by Christmas tide or Christmas time, and then Epiphany, when the Magi came and, and they realized who Jesus was, the wise men. And then it went into um, the Sundays after Epiphany, and then Lent, the season before uh, the sacrifice of Christ. There's Holy Week. And then there's Good Friday and Easter Sunday and Resurrection Day, and then the Sundays after Easter, including Resurrection Day, and then Pentecost. At Pentecost, it just goes to what's called the regular time. But there is a genius in the way they divided the year. They studied the life of Christ from the first Sunday of Advent to Pentecost, and they uh, talked about His life in terms of His prophecy, His priesthood, and His kingship. They organized it around these three offices of Christ. And then from Pentecost on, they celebrated the life of the church. As they read through the book of Acts and the epistles, they celebrated how the church went out and proclaimed the word and brought uh, the good word of salvation and the lordship of Jesus Christ to the world. So uh, Justin has put us in a right track, I think, this uh, first Sunday of Advent to prepare for the coming of Christ, at least in our hearts and in our Heart, in our religion and in our history by looking at the offices of Jesus Christ. That's taken from the Scripture. Some people think that this whole idea of talking about offices is rather Presbyterian uh, because it says in the Confession of Faith about Christ the Mediator, it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the Mediator between God and man, the prophet priest and king, the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did for all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called justified, sanctified, and glorified. But it's not true that the Westminster divines made up this idea of the offices of Christ. They're thoroughly and completely substantiated by the testimony of the apostles and their preaching and teaching in the New Testament. For example, look at Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now there's the clear statement that God is always speaking to us through prophets. He never speaks to us directly, always through someone else. The prophet's job is to stand between God and men and to speak for God to men, and he has always used prophets from Moses, or actually from Abraham, I guess, all the way down to Jesus Christ, who is the last the permanent and the fullest, perfect prophet. So the first three chapters of Hebrews compares Jesus Christ to Moses, how he is a superior prophet. He brings us the truth of God, and the reason he is able to do that, he says, because he's the exact representation of his nature. He is divine nature in human form, God, that we can see, that we can communicate with, that we can touch and have a personal relationship with. But he's also a priest. Look at the next verse. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To make purification of sins points to the fact that Jesus Christ is a priest. So the office of priest is expounded upon by the the author of Hebrews from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 10. It's the bulk of this epistle. It's the supremacy of Christ's priesthood. He is compared not to Moses as a priest but to Aaron And his priesthood is superior to Aaron because he has a superior person and he does a superior work as a priest to that of Aaron. And he's also a king. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again... When he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, "...let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." So there's the lordship or the kingship of Jesus Christ. Your throne, O God, the Father says to the Son, is forever and ever. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. He will go on to state these things over and over again. So our little confession of faith, when it begins to teach these things to the people of God, it asks us certain questions. Perhaps the best question I think of all in this short catechism, did God leave all mankind? To perish in sin and ministry? No. From all eternity, and merely because it pleased him, God elected some to eternal life. These he freed from sin and misery through a covenant of grace and brought them to salvation by a Redeemer. The questions go on. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, And so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and 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 in one person forever. So here is the Redeemer, the only mediator between God and man. And the catechisms go on and says, well, what are the offices of the Redeemer? And it says the offices of the Redeemer are prophet, priest, and king, which Christ holds both in his estate of humiliation as a man and exaltation as the risen king of glory. And then it goes on to ask questions about each one of these offices. The one we'll look at tonight is the priest. How does Christ execute the office of priest? Christ executes the office of priest in his once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. That's what a priest does. He has two jobs. He atones for the people's sins by making sacrifices, and He prays for the people and encourages them as they struggle along in their sinful ways, walking by faith in the sacrifices that God has ordained. Now, this might appear to be just a bunch of bare bones, dry, cross your eyes and go to sleep, Reformed theology, but I think not, despite the fact that I may be boring and you cross your eyes and go to sleep. This truth is quite revealing to us about some things we need to know. Because what the author of Hebrews is writing about is the essence of true religion. Now We don't like that word today. In fact, we've been told by many evangelical writers that religion is bad and religion is the opposite of the gospel. And I'm here to tell you that's absolutely false. Just read the author of Hebrews. Spirituality is what you possess as a person. It involves your personal way of relating as an individual to God. And every person has a spirituality. They might be spiritually oriented to God as a Muslim, or Hindu, or Jew, or Buddhist. They may choose to have no, ah, ah, ah-theistic, no God relationship. They're an atheist. But by the very nature of choosing that, they have a spirituality a way that they have determined that they will relate to God. It is your relationship to God on your terms, which is not necessarily bad. Spirituality can be true and it can be false based upon the principles and the the facts that it's based upon. But we have more than spirituality. We have a corporate dimension to our faith, a group spirituality called religion. And religion is different from spirituality in that it's objective. It doesn't arise from us subjectively. It's not our relationship to God on our terms. It's God's relationship to us on His terms. And it's a correction to our spirituality. Just as true spirituality is an enlightening to religion. Without true spirituality, religion becomes dead and formal and void. And without true religion, spirituality goes astray. And so the essence... Of true religion is how we relate to God. And the author of Hebrews was facing a problem. He was a pastor. and Like pastors, all pastors, he worried about his people because he pastored a congregation we believe in Rome or somewhere in central Italy because he says those in Italy greet you as he writes this epistle to all the saints in Italy. And he pastored these people at a time when the Emperor Nero was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. And so he he reached a crisis because many people in his congregation who had once been Jews, there was a huge Jewish population in Rome, had decided to leave the Christian religion, not to renounce Christ, but to leave the Christian religion and to go back to Judaism because it was safer. Jews were not persecuted by Nero. Christians were killed. And so they said to themselves, well, you know, it's, it's basically the same thing. Let's go back to Judaism where it's safe. Now, take a look at this in chapter 6. This is where the author of Hebrews talks about this. It's the heart of the epistle. The whole epistle of Hebrews kind of pivots on Hebrews chapter 6. If you don't have your Bibles or your cell phones, please take them out because I'm going to bore you to death because I'm going to be jumping from Scripture to Scripture, and pretty soon you'll be comatose just trying to follow me with with your ears only. And look at chapter 6. He says, Therefore let us lead the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, but of instructions about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, he uses the word, then of apostatized, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and hold Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain and that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he says here, there are those who came into the church, um, Pagan Romans and Greeks and Jews, and they tasted all of these spiritual gifts. They participated in the corporate life of the church. They, they were touched by the Holy Spirit in some way, but they shrank back. He talks about that in chapter 10, how they, how they were persecuted. Even their property was taken away, and they were thrown in prison. They were beaten. But he said, you did not shrink back. Many did. They said, it's safer to be a Jew than to be a Christian. And the author of Hebrews says, once you do that, you've given up true religion because you've given up the true prophet, the only priest, and our sovereign King, Jesus Christ. Here's the essence of true religion. You wonder how you can determine which true religion has a true God and the true priest between God and men who offers to that god a true sacrifice who as a prophet speaks to the people the truth of the word and as a king rules them and protects them and provides for them according to god's design that's how you have true religion for there is one god and one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus who at the proper time made for himself and for made by himself a ransom for us Because he did the will of God. So that's what this author is talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Justin's going to come and explain to you what it means for Christ to be our prophet. What it means for him to be our king. He's asked me to do the priesthood tonight. So we want to spin off by looking at this passage of Scripture taken from chapter 4 and 5 of Hebrews beginning in chapter 4, verse 11, and reading through chapter 5, verse 10. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal just gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ, did not exalt himself to be made a priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, and here he quotes Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here is the difference between a priest and a prophet. A prophet stands between God and men and speaks for God to men. A priest stands between God and men and appeals to God on behalf of men. The the prophet says, thus says the Lord. The priest says, O Lord, thus say the people. This is what we pray. This is what we need. This is the forgiveness we ask for. He goes between God and the people to bring forgiveness of sins and the comfort of God to a wayward people. So in explaining this confidence that we have in the priesthood, this author of Hebrews says we, several times, let us draw near to God with confidence through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He says there's four things we are confident about. First of all, the nature of this priest. Second of all, the covenant of this priest. Thirdly, this longevity of the priest. How long will he be in office? And finally, the complete or perfect work of this priest. And with those things in mind, the author of Hebrews is saying, why would you go anywhere else and look for any other priest? Why would you go back to Aaron's priest's? Or to the rabbis of the synagogue, when you have the perfect priest in the temple of God in heaven acting on your behalf. First, he says, we have confidence in the nature of this priest. He says in this passage, which I think may be, at least for me, the most encouraging verse in the Bible. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is a huge emphasis in the early part of Hebrews on the part of this author. Several times he mentions how Jesus Christ was one of us in his person and in his work. Look in chapter 2, over in chapter 2, where he talks about this this Jesus Christ who was us in in such a way that he's not ashamed to be called our brother. Chapter 2, verse 10. He says, for it was fitting... For he, that is Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should take the founder of their salvation and perfect him through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, and that is Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, in the, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise." Down in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one through the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that help us, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he has to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted is able to help those who are being tempted look how many times the author of Hebrews says Christ was just like us except without sin he was tempted just as we are he suffered just as we are he lived the fullness of the human experience with all of its disappointments pains and its shame just as we did and because of that we have confidence to go to Him and to pray through Him and to appeal to Him. You know, many times, <clears throat> especially with my besetting sins that just don't seem to go away, I've gone to God and said, you know, God, I, I know this is hard for you to understand, but and as soon as I say that, my prayer is false because he does understand. Jesus Christ has been tempted to do everything I have done. The temptation may have even been stronger upon him because of the sinless perfection of his nature, and yet he didn't do it. But when I say to Jesus Christ, you know because of such and such, this is why I do these things, Jesus Christ doesn't say to me, that's just an excuse, Michael. Don't, don't use that with me. You know better than to do that. He says, you know, I understand, brother. Understand what it is to be insulted, to be abused, to be neglected. I understand as a, a child in school how the children would say, your mother's a whore and you're just a bastard and everybody knows it. And not strike back. I understand what it is to have your family not trust in you <laughs> because none of my family did. In fact, at one point, they came to get me because they thought that I'd lost my mind. Understand in the darkest hour to say to my three closest friends, would you stay here tonight and pray with me because I'm about to die and have them all go to sleep on me three times? I know what it is to be betrayed, to be forsaken. I have actually prayed, unlike any of you have ever prayed, Oh God, why have you forsaken me of all people? Your son, your sinless son, why have you given up on me? So when we pray, we should pray with confidence that at the right hand of God sits a son who can say to his father, Father, I've been there. I've done that. It's happened to me. And I want you to realize that they are but flesh. And I want you to forgive them for my sake. Because you see, Father, I am one of them. Those are my brothers and sisters. Now, I don't think the Father needs him to say that. But I'm illustrating the importance of Jesus Christ sitting there. I'll tell you a true story. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and... And one of the things that we were taught, in fact, it was the center of our Catholic religion, was the presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And in the back of the, of the sanctuary, on, on the altar, was a little dome box. It was made of gold and brass called the tabernacle, and it was locked. What was locked in it was a, a chalice or cup full of consecrated hosts. And we were taught as little children in getting ready for the Lord's Supper that, that um that that really was the presence of Christ there, and that one time a boy who was an altar boy who was beginning to put the candles out and shut down the altar had seen the door of the tabernacle open with nothing in it, and he stuck his hand in, and it turned leprous. Kind of the story of Uzziah, the king. And I said to myself, Whoa, that's amazing nine years old. I said, that's amazing that God's really in that golden box. Well, you know, you know what happened. About a year later, I was shutting down the altar. No one else in the church but me. And the priest had left the tabernacle open. And so I went and I looked in that thing and there was nothing in it. And I said, I'm going to find out if this is true. So I began to go like this. I said, I'm right-handed, just in case, and I put my left hand in, I went all the back, closed my eyes, and touched it, touched the back of this little domed ball or cabinet in there, and reached it out and said, God, forgive me if I'm wrong, and it was perfectly normal. And I was much relieved and much disappointed. Because at the age of 10, I realized God wasn't in that box. If God was present with us, it wasn't in a piece of bread, in a golden box, on an altar in Columbus, Ohio. It was devastating. But God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand. That's the first reason we have confidence. Here's the second Because of the longevity of this priest, look over in chapter five, or uh, uh, it is in chapter five where he says, "Today I have declared that you are priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek." Chapter five, verse six. You'll notice in chapter seven that that is repeated four more times. Five times in two and a half chapters, Psalm one ten is repeated. Now, without turning there, I'll tell you what he's, what he's talking about. He's talking about an Old Testament story about Abraham, who went off to war to rescue his nephew Lot, who'd been captured by a wicked king, and he delivered Lot out of that bondage. And on the way back, he came and encountered a man named Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, another name for Jerusalem, and he brought food and gave comfort and encouragement to Abraham and his men. And in response to that, he blessed Abraham. Abraham turned around and tied to him. This person who we know nothing about except for those four verses in chapter 14 of Genesis comes out of nowhere. We know nothing about his family, nothing about his past, and nothing about what happened. He just appears. He blesses Abraham, the father of us all, and receives our worship and then goes and the author of Hebrews says, that person, Melchizedek, king of righteousness from Salem, place of peace, is a type or an image, a foretaste of Christ. Christ is a priest, not an ironic Levitical priest, but a Judah tribe, a kingly tribe, who is a king and a priest. And he, like Melchizedek, has his priesthood forever. Now, Melchizedek didn't, but since the author of Hebrews says we knew nothing about him before and nothing about him afterwards, he becomes a type of an eternal priest. Thou art a priest forever. Or let me put it in the way it would read in the Greek. Thou art a priest in eternity according to the order or pattern of Melchizedek. He's quoting Psalm 110, where God says, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord send forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments they will dress. From the womb of the morning to the dew dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and then he will drink from the brook by the way and will lift up his head in triumph. Here's a picture in Psalm 110 of Jesus Christ, a king and a priest. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If we had the time to read through chapter 5 and 6 and 7 of Hebrews, we'd find that that is greatly significant for us because this priesthood of Jesus Christ doesn't come to an end. We're not looking at someone who will die and his priesthood will end, and then another high priest will come. We never know whether he's going to be as good or as faithful as the one before him, whether he'll be as sufficient for his work as the one before him, or better than the one after him. This one perfect priest remains a priest forever forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And because of that, he brings with him a new order, an order that is eternal. That's the difference between Aaron and his sons and Jesus Christ and his singular priesthood. What Jesus Christ does lasts forever, not so with the priests who were before him. Even though these were good and devout men, they… they didn't have the, the staying power of Jesus Christ. You know, in the church I grew up in, we were taught that the sacrifice of Christ was reenacted again and again and again every time the Mass was offered up and the host were consecrated that Jesus Christ was sacrificed again and again. He was nailed on the cross again and again and again in heaven on and on and on, thousands, perhaps millions of times, every day around the world, every day of the year, century after century after millennial. That's not true. Christ died for sins once for all. Once. The just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but raised to life in the Spirit, He has an eternal priesthood. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Matthew. You know, Psalm 110 is the most often quoted Old Testament Scripture in all of the New Testament. Nothing is quoted in the New Testament more than Psalm 110, making this point that the priesthood of Jesus Christ goes on and on and on and on because, according to chapter 7, verse 19, a better hope is introduced to which we draw near to God. What is this better hope? Well, this better hope is the third thing he talks about. It's the better hope of a better covenant. The author of Hebrews says every time a priest died, there was a renewal of the law of the covenant. But when Jesus Christ came, there came the new and final law, the law of the gospel, and the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about. Look at chapter 10, if you will, for just a moment. Verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise… Would, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year, for it is poss- impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Christ says, you know, these sacrifices went on and on and on, almost in a way to drive the people out of necessity and even frustration to say, is there nothing that's can done? that would bring us into a better covenant with God? And Jesus said, yes, me. I have come in a body to do the will of God, to perfect the people of God through perfect obedience, and to make the final sacrifice, and to institute a new covenant. That new covenant is talked about in chapters 8 and 9 and 10. A new covenant that was foreshadowed by types. This is a fascinating passage to read. where the author of Hebrews says, the way the tabernacle was laid out is an image of the way heaven really is. The tabernacle is a type of Christ. You can see that in the book of Revelation. Heaven is described in tabernacle terms with a court and a place for sacrifice and a holy place and the holy of holies where God sits and at His right hand is Jesus Christ. What Moses was told to design and build, what Solomon perfected into earthly glory, was nothing more than an earthly image of a spiritual reality of the temple where Jesus Christ is. And now, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ has gone into the presence of God. He's rent the veil. He's opened up that holy place so that little boys can put their hands in the sacred places and not become lepers, and sinners can look to the throne of grace and have immediate access to God through Jesus Christ, and not have to go through centuries of ritual and dynasties of priesthood and bazillions of bazillions of sacrifices that never could take away our sins. But Christ has instituted the better covenant in His flesh. One sacrifice, one eternal priest, one perfection forever, and therefore He makes for us a perfect way to God. Here's the power of Christ's work. It's the power to change us. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Look in chapter 9, and look in these powerful verses, beginning in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, Not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Listen to this now. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let me, let me paraphrase this. If going to the priest in the Old Testament, sacrifice of the sacrifice, made you ceremonially clean so you could come again and do it again looking to something that would ultimately come but you never realized was the good way then, how much greater is this one sacrifice that changes us That's why we call a new covenant. Chapter 9, he quotes from Jeremiah. What makes it the new covenant is the internal change that the, the Christ brings through the Holy Spirit. He will write the Word on their hearts, not on tablets of stone in an ark of the covenant. He will put their spirit within them. They will become temples of the Holy Spirit, not a building where the Spirit lives that you have to go to miles and miles away. He will change them so that they our living temples, so that they are walking testimonies of their covenant with God, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, our covenant with God. He will effect an eternal change called regeneration. They will be born again and become new creatures, sons of the living God, in a way that they can't lose and that nothing can take away. That's why it's a superior covenant, because of the internal work that this priest does in our life. All the other priests did external things. They just put before us images the remindedness of reality yet to come. We happen to live in the days where that reality is here and we experience it. That points to the final thing, the complete and perfect sacrifice or perfect work of this priest. He says, remember these two things. A priest, as we said in the catechism, offers sins to reconcile us to God and lives to make intercession for us. Atonement and prayer. And he says that is what Jesus Christ is doing for us. He will say in another place, he is able to save completely those who come to him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He has offered up once for all his own flesh as a sacrifice that we might have access to God. These are key statements in our religion once for all, always, forever, once for all, atoned for sins, always living to pray for you, forever your priest, your own flesh at the right hand of God, interceding, applying the benefits of atonement, comforting, healing, leading you as one of the people of God. You know, we're living in an age where there's a great revolution taking, and it's not a good one. It's a revolution of people who are saying in the West, in America, we're tired of the old religion. We're tired of the gospel church, we want something new. We don't want to go to church anymore. That's what the millennials are saying. The reason they're not saying is because it's too hard. There's other people saying, you know, I'm tired of going to a church that's just a lecture hall. I want something that makes me feel spiritual. I want liturgy. And so they're going to Roman Catholicism or to Eastern Orthodoxy or to Judaism or to Islam. Because going through these motions the make them feel closer to God, and yet if they look at what they're looking for, they're finding the opposite. They're finding something that has happens again and again and again. There's other people who are saying, you know, I'm mad at the pastor. Justin's the reason I'm leaving the church, and I'm not coming back. And then they leave the church, and pretty soon they're not reading their Bible, and pretty soon. They're not praying, and pretty soon, in a year or two, you can't tell them from a pagan. You see, they're making—we're making all the mistakes of the people of Rome in 64, 65, 66 A.D. We're thinking we can go to something else and find what we're looking for. And this pastor, his wise, seasoned pastor, says it's a mistake. Islam could never be the true religion because it has no true God. It has a false prophet. There is no priest. There's no atonement and there's no forgiveness offered in Islam. Hinduism can't be it. They have so many gods and so many priests and so many sacrifices that nothing gains them any assurance. Buddhism doesn't have a God, just a philosophical system, and there's no no prophet or priest or No method to do anything. Roman Catholicism tells you to offer this over and over and over again, and stay in the church, and maybe you'll get to heaven. And Judaism has rejected what God gave to the people of the world for the once for all salvation of their souls. Why would we want to go anywhere else? Because that's his bottom line. You say, Pastor, you shouldn't be talking negative about these people. Well, I shouldn't, but I'm a negative person. But the author of Hebrews is not. He's not. Look what he says in chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, here's his great application of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, here's what we'd take away with this priesthood of Christ. We have great assurance to enter into the holy place through the blood of Jesus Christ. Go right up to the face of God and say, Father… Through Jesus Christ, this is what I need. We have confidence, he says, that our sins have been washed away and our bodies cleansed with pure water so that we're always ceremonially clean, always able to come to church, always able to come to worship, always able to enter into prayer before God because we are clean forever. And we need to comfort one another with this. And encourage one another and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We are not to forsake our assembling together as is the tendency of Americans. But encourage one another all the more as you see, listen, as you see the day drawing near. Because as Abby said earlier, as we talk about the first advent, we can't help but think of the second. Jesus is coming again. And the author of Hebrews says it this way. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for his appearing. Christ isn't coming the second time to atone for sin. That's been done. He's coming to say to his people, come with me. You who've believed in me and been faithful to me, come with me. He's coming not to say, but to judge. And we see that day drawing near. I know it's easy to get discouraged. I will tell you this, and Jane can verify, I wish I had just a dollar bill for every time I quit the pastoral ministry. (laughs) Justin, I'd buy you a building. I'd build you the second temple here in Westerville and have cash left over. I wish I had a penny for every time I said to the Lord, I can't do this. This is too hard. I, I just can't hack it, and then come to church and been encouraged by people like you to hang in there and go. I can't tell you how many times as a church planner I said to myself, oh, oh, God, this was a mistake. This is, I just, this is impossible, and yet the means of grace lifted me up and the people and through us God did it. I know you get discouraged. I do. I know you can be beside yourself. I can be beside myself and say, wow, what a mess. And I know it's easier in many ways not to be a Christian than to be a Christian, except for one thing. It's just one little thing. It's so something that Peter said one time when Jesus Christ really slapped it down about the bread of life, and everybody said, whoa, this is difficult, and they left. And Jesus turned to them and said, you're going to go to. Listen to what our precious brother Peter said. Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And listen, and we know and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One sent from God. We're going to go to this table in just a few minutes. This is not a sacrifice. It's not an altar. It's a table. It's a remembrance of someone who courageously pushed through to our salvation and now offers it to us. It's a means of grace to strengthen us. Jesus is really standing behind me, if you could see him, and saying, do this in remembrance of me, and I will strengthen you and comfort you because I am your priest, Forever. According to the order of McGee's, I will never fail you. I will always love you. And I will always sit at my Father's right hand and say, Father, this one is mine, bought with my blood. Bless him. Bless them. Be with them. Jesus Christ will not fail us so. To where else would we go to find a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ and his redeemed people? You. Let's pray.